Welcome to Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. Behind every history book, or any book for that matter, is an author. They don't research and write in a vacuum. And the context of their day-to-day lives and the broader world around them inevitably influences what they write, how they write, the questions they ask, and the answers they discover. Susan Lee Johnson's new book, Writing Kit Carson, Fallen Heroes in a Changing West, explores the lives of two female historians who wrote about the 19th century frontiersman Kit Carson in a moment when the historical profession was changing in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and many fields were deconstructing familiar mythologies and uncovering the messiness of the past. These two historians in particular found themselves out of step, and Johnson traces their difficult experiences. Along the way, she inserts her own experiences with Carson, and how her life interacts with these intersecting biographies. I hope you enjoy our conversation, but first, a little bit of housekeeping. For new listeners, let me take a quick moment to explain a bit about the podcast. Each episode features a conversation with authors, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, academics, or others who write about the North American West. Our goal is not only showcase their work, but to spark curiosity among you, the listeners, to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the people who call it home. If a writer intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation, with me playing the roles of host, producer, sound engineer, and just about everything else, all of which entail tasks for which I have very little training. But I am passionate about the North American West, and all the work is well worth the excuse to read more and to talk to interesting people. At the end of this episode, I will include some more information on me and my scholarship and on the Red Center, our programming and projects and funding opportunities that you could apply for. That's right, we may want to give you money. With all this business out of the way, let's move on to today's conversation. First, I'd like to introduce to you who it is we're talking to and why. Dr. Susan Lee Johnson is the inaugural Harry Reid Endowed Chair for the History of the Intermountain West in the Department of History at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. With faculty affiliations in Gender and Sexuality Studies and Latinx and Latin American Studies. In 2021, she is serving as the President of the Western History Association. Johnson is a historian of the North American West and its borderlands, specializing in the studies of gender, race, ethnicity, and indigeneity. In addition to producing edited volumes and articles, her book, Roaring Camp, The Social World of the California Gold Rush, published by W.W. Norton in 2000, won the W. Turntine Jackson Prize from the Western History Association and the Bancroft Prize. Johnson's scholarship has been recognized by various other organizations as well, with awards, fellowships, grants, support, and praise. Her recent book that we'll talk about today, Writing Kit Carson, Fallen Heroes in a Changing West, was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. In this book, she examines the lives of two amateur historians who worked on Kit Carson during the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, Quantrill McClung and Bernice Blackwelder. She explores how they approached Kit Carson and their work, and then how they reacted as the field around them changed. With this, she intersects her own stories and relationships with Kit Carson and with these two women. The resulting text is a fascinating blending of biography, historiography, a study of how history is written, why it's written, as well as an exhibition of how a historian today, herself, can approach topics in new and innovative ways. Professor Susan Lee Johnson, welcome to Writing Westward. Thank you so much for having me, Brendan. It's a pleasure to be here. I am really excited to talk about this book, and I want to start by talking about kind of the fascinating personal path that you have with this project, which is, you know, a couple decades in the making. For those of us who write books, we very rarely end up writing the book that we thought we were going to write when we start researching. And I want to know how this played out for you. What was the book that you had thought you were going to write? And then how and why did you pivot to end up writing something very different? 
Right. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. We never write the book we uh, started out thinking we were writing. But this is a more radical departure, I think, than usual, because I was trained as a 19th century historian, had written about the California gold rush, and launched a 19th century project where I thought I would look at uh, Kit Carson's uh, relationships with indigenous and Spanish Mexican women and use those relationships as a kind of window on the transformation of the Southwest as it transformed from being the, uh, you know, uh, the, the Northern frontier of New Spain to uh, Mexico's Northern frontier to the US Southwest. So that's what I thought I was doing. And I did maybe a year of research um, uh, on that work. And then um, I happened upon a collection at the Denver Public Library, um, uh, the collection of a librarian, a deceased librarian named Quantrill McClung. Um, and she had produced a genealogy of the Carson family uh, and also two other families, the Bent and Boggs, Boggs families. These were all Anglo-American men who went down the Santa Fe Trail, uh, were involved in the Santa Fe trade and the fur trade and, um, uh, and, and intermarried either with indigenous women or Spanish Mexican women. And did you happen upon her collection because you had already seen the, the genealogy book she had produced? Yeah, and I thought, well, I wonder, you know, it was her research files. Yeah, I what's in her notes? What else is in there, right? Yeah, maybe she had happened upon some primary sources that, you know, I might not get at as easily. Um, I didn't find anything like that. But what I found in that collection was um, a, a collection of about 300 or so letters between Quantrill McClung, this, this retired librarian who was a genealogist, and a woman named Bernice Blackwelder, who had written a biography of Kit Carson. Uh, Quantrill's, uh, McClung's genealogy was published in 1962, the first one, a supplement a decade or so later, and Bernice Blackwelder's bi biography was published in 1962. And here was this correspondence because they only for a very brief period of time did they li live in the same metropolitan area. Mostly they lived across the country from one another. And here were all of these letters between these two women really amateur historians, not trained as historians, but who had, had produced really pretty substantial pieces of scholarship on Carson and his marriages and his life. And I thought, oh, this would make such an interesting article uh, about 20th century people thinking about the 19th century past, about uh, the relationships between amateur historians and professional historians, because this is also the moment where the field of Western history was really professionalizing. Uh, the Western Histo uh, History Association was formed in, in 1962 as well. Um, and so the field of Western history was kind of shifting from being mostly amateur historians, some professional historians, but a lot of amateur historians writing histories to uh, uh, we, we see kind of an ascendance of professional academic historians. And here were these two women writing about Kit Carson in the midst of all of these changes. And then they kept doing this work um, into the 1970s um, at the moment when uh, frontier figures like Kit Carson were falling from grace. Uh, they were no longer seen by everyone anyway, as, as frontier heroes. Um, and their correspondence traced all of that. So how, how far along were you? Were you just a year into the project when you bumped into About this collection? About a year or so. Um, you know, and at first I thought I was just writing an article. Yeah. And then I thought, oh, this would make a nice little book. Um, but the deeper I got into the research, I, I now call it my little big book because it, it just expanded, um, especially when I decided I needed to know how these women got to this moment in 1962 where they were producing Western history just as Western history as a field uh, was professionalizing. Like what in their lives 
led them to that moment? And then how did they deal with the changes that were going on in the field uh, as they got older? And how long did it take for you to come to the realization that this little article was going to be not even just a little book, but going to be the book? Was it a long, tortuous process? Were you in denial for a while? Yes, yes. <laughs> and I especially thought when I thought it was going to be a little book, a kind of a slim book, um, you know, that probably went on for three or four years. But in the meantime, I was doing more research and I realized these letters were not all I could find out about these women, that there were other sources. Quantrill McClung, for example, had left a whole other collection at what was then called the Colorado Historical Society is now called Colorado History that were more personal materials from uh, her young adulthood. And I found a, uh, a niece of Bernice Blackwelder. Uh, she didn't, neither woman had children. Bernice Blackwelder was married, but didn't have children. And I found a niece of hers who it turned out had all of her aunt's materials from her younger life. And she decided quite late in life to write history. She had been a performer on the stage and on radio for a brief time in the 1950s. She worked for the CIA. So once I discovered all of these other sources, I realized I had a much bigger story on my hands. I think this is a great testament to the need for researchers and authors to be flexible and open to yeah, you, you never, I mean, that's the great thing about digging in archives is it's an adventure, you know, we don't quite get to be the Indiana Jones that we thought maybe we were going to be as kids and we thought I'll be a historian and um, it's not quite that glamorous, but you do find unexpected things and it's great to be open to that and see where it leads you because maybe it leads you somewhere more exciting than what you had anticipated. That's right. And I think, uh, you know, for those of us who are in, in academia, often achieving tenure allows you, you know, a first book is generally your, your uh, PhD dissertation expanded and revised. Um, but if you're fortunate enough to get tenure, I think you can slow down and take more time and go in unexpected directions. Um, and that's what happened. It took much, much longer than I thought it would, um, but, but that's okay, it's out now. I also think it's great how this is kind of a very, organic historiography in a way. Often when we talk about historiography, like kind of like the history of how history is written, it's really dry. Like this person wrote this and then this person rebutted with this. And you're doing some of that in looking at how and why these women are writing these books and the way they are and how they're responding, but you, you fill it with their biographies and it's, it's intimate and personal. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just really wonderful. Right. So I think people who write, who, you know, who deal in historiography have always, you know, tried to put the histories that historians produce in their historical context. Like what was going on in the world, you know, politically, socially, culturally at the time that influenced the shape of a book or an article that someone produced. Um, and I certainly do that in the book, but I also wanted to pay attention just to the dailiness of historians' lives, where they do their work, um, what their socioeconomic status is, uh, what it's like for them to visit archives, um, how that uh, being able to do that work changes over time as, as we age and you know, uh, maybe can't visit archives in the way we, we did in the past. So I really wanted to embed this not just in the kind of broad historical context, I wanted to do that, but also in the dailiness of these women's lives. Along those lines, you do another thing that's quite unique, which is embedding yourself in this story in some very direct and intimate and really surprising ways. And you argue that professional historians, we have this practice uh, intentionally distancing ourselves uh, and, and the first person, right, from our scholarship. And you say that maybe that's not only a little bit disingenuous because we can't fully detach ourselves from what we're doing, but you argue that maybe it's not even helpful um, that we don't gain that much. So I'm curious, again, not to just talk about process and how you went about writing um, this, but I'm curious, you know, at what point did you start 
to see yourself in them? Or did you start to see that, wow, this speaks to me in compelling ways? And then how did that lead you to decide to make you, you say that you make yourself visible right. uh, in it. How did you come to that? Well, and you're right. I think we as historians are trained to take a kind of God's eye view of history um, and to stress our own um, sort of objectivity and neutrality. And it's not that I, um, that I oppose that way of thinking about the past and that way of writing history, but I do think that we always have relationships to uh, to the histories that we're writing. And um, in some ways I decided this could be a kind of experiment. What if I made myself not fully visible, but made myself a character in this book and kind of owned up to my relationship uh, to these women as historians, to my relationship to Kit Carson as a historical figure, my relationship to his intimate relationships. Um, and it's not that I think we should all write histories like this, and I'll probably never write another history like this, but I wanted to experiment with that. I wanted to see what that looked like. And, you know, it slowed me down a fair amount because I couldn't take that God's eye view. I always had to be asking, why do I understand the relationship between these two women the way I do? Why do I understand their perspective on Kit Carson and his intimate relationships the way I do? Um, you know, what, how do I think about, you know, now we would call them more independent historians rather than amateur historians, independent historians may or may not have uh, you know, uh, professional training, um, and, you know, sort of bringing, just understanding my own baggage. Um, so again, it's not that I think uh, everyone should write histories like this, um, but I do think we should all interrogate our relationship to uh, the subjects that interest us. And why not interrogate it on the page, right? Right. And, and put right. it out there and play with it. I found myself reading through some sections here and reading about Quantrill's story. And then we head over to Bernice and I found myself myself anticipating, I wonder how this is all gonna intersect with Susan. Like, I wonder what, she, what she's gonna bring to this. And you, and you don't dedicate equal time yourself. You kind of place yourself kind of in small sections at the end, you know, after some thematic right. things that, with the other two women. But um, I found myself thinking very differently about, about the book because I was always, anticipating you as the author and your your voice and your experience. Right. So, uh, you know, in the book, I, I've divided it up, not really into chapters, but into parts. And I kind of uh, introduce each part where I am, I am very present. And then it, at the end of each part, I sort of come back into it. Um, and I try to take a kind of less is more approach. Of course, I could have said much more, but I wanted to stress those aspects of my own life, my family's history that I thought were most relevant to the story I was trying to tell. And in many ways, the my full relationship to the story isn't really revealed until the last couple pages of, of, of the book. Um, and that's intentional, uh, intentional too. I, I felt like by the end, I had kind of earned the right to really spill the beans, <laughs> which I do. Yeah. And as the older I get, the more often I get misty a little bit uh, reading things or watching commercials. It's, I don't, I don't know if this is like being middle-aged, <laughs> but there were a couple of moments. I mean, especially at the end of um, Quantrill's life uh, and thinking about her kind of lonely and somewhat destitute uh, there in Colorado. It was... I kind of really, it really hurt to read that. And then, you know, your closing vignette was really, really powerful. Um, I was going to ask, you know, what you think you gained by, by doing this, but I, I think, I think we've already covered that. It imbues this book with know, just something very different and unique. Um, I'm writing a book right now about Western wilderness, ex people's experiences in Western wildernesses. And my original plan was to kind of open each 
chapter with a personal story of my own, uh, you know, put it in italics or something, right. and then um, maybe bounce. Then as I dive into the history that's kind of related to an experience I had, kind of maybe bounce back and forth, you know, or bounce back against it a couple of times throughout these chapters. And, and recently I've been like, no, that's, nobody wants that. No one wants to hear my stupid stories about, you know, whatever foolhardy thing I was doing up in the mountains. Um, but you give me courage. Maybe, uh, maybe there's, there's some power in it that might be exciting. Right. Well, there has to be a reason. There has to be a reason why you're telling those stories about yourselves. It has to be deeply connected to what you want people to understand. Otherwise, I think it's just it's just self-indulgent. Um, that, that's and, what I've always feared. Yeah. Right. So I, I think the question is, how can we be responsible to our topics and the histories we're writing without being self-indulgent? And I fully anticipate that some readers will think I've slipped pretty far into the into the self-indulgent category, but I don't think all readers will think that. And that's why, as I said, I tried to strike a balance and, you know, sometimes decide less less is more. Those those sections got shorter and shorter as I revised and pruned and and edited. Well, you know, there'll be some grad students in some seminar who will take you to task for it, but you can't always, you can't please all the grad students in seminar, you know, right? they, well, have, it, they have to find something to pick apart. <laughs> they get, it'll give them something to argue about, right? Yeah. So if nothing else, you've provided good fodder for grad seminars to debate and get angry at each other across the country. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk then about, uh, about these two women. In the, in the first part of your book, you um, talk about how they what you call crafting Kit Carson, but about how they wrote about him. They're researching this in the 1950s. They both published in 1962. Um, what is the the cultural moment, the 1950s, 60s Cold War context in which they are thinking about Kit Carson, asking questions about him, and then producing their research and their own interpretation of him? What's the moment that they're they're operating in? So uh, you're exactly right that this is this is very much a Cold War moment, uh, a moment in which uh, the United States is uh, is primarily worried about its uh, relationship with the communist USSR. Uh, there's an uh, an emphasis on containment, and there's a a, an in, an, a, a sort of intimate aspect of this, uh, uh, an emphasis on the family. Uh, as uh, this kind of locus for security and containment, et cetera. So um, what's interesting to me about these women and the work they do is that they foreground Kit Carson's family relationships, his intimate relationships in a way that, um, that male historians, professional and amateur, had not emphasized in the past. It's not that no one had ever noticed that Kit Carson had married three times, uh, uh, first to uh, an Arapaho woman who died, then a Cheyenne woman who didn't like him much and got rid of him kind of quickly, and then uh, married into a Northern New Mexican family and Hispano family in Northern New Mexico. So historians knew that, but to the extent that they mentioned it, they did not highlight it. Highlight it. These women did. I mean, obviously, Quantrill McClung did. She was a genealogist. That's what genealogists do. Uh, but Bernice Blackwelder, in her biography, did so as well. So I see this as, um, you know, as very much of this Cold War moment that they create this Kit Carson who is a, a sort of frontier hero, but he's also a family man. And, um, and they did that first uh, before other historians. Nowadays, historians pay attention to those kinds of things. But um, at the time they were writing, that was pretty innovative in, in Western history. And they were trying to portray him also as a specific kind of family man, right? They were they're trying to speak to this broader cultural moment of, you know, and as the family is, you know, the, the bedrock of a good American society versus, you know, the communists or whoever else we're worried about. 
So how do they then approach some of the messiness of him and his family relations and those intimate family stories? Right, because the kind of family that is most vaunted is the, you know, kind of white middle class, um, you know, uh, nuclear family. And here is Kit Carson with a series of relationships with non-white women, with indigenous women, uh, with the Spanish Mexican women. They, um, uh, his, his first marriage, uh, they had two children, only one of whom lived to adulthood. And then his um, marriage to Josefa Jaramillo produced eight children, seven of whom lived into adulthood. And this is a moment when Americans are uh, debating uh, interracial relationships um, uh, and you know, they have to deal with this. Here's this, here's this famous pioneer, white pioneer, but oh, his intimate relationships were always with non-white women. Uh, how do we think about that? Um, a genealogist, I think, doesn't have to articulate in quite the same way what he or she thinks about those kinds of relationships. A biographer does. Um, so Bernice Blackwelder, I argue in her biography, Great Westerner, kind of describes Kit Carson's relationships as a kind of journey towards increasing whiteness. Um, so his relationships with indigenous women are sort of the relationships of his youth, but then he matures, he marries into this uh, Spanish-Mexican family, and an, uh, an aristocratic you know, one at that, right? So kind right. of somehow another step up that right. ladder of civilization. Right. right. And I think, you know, by the 1950s, um, you know, civil rights movements are in full swing, really have been for decades, but are so visible, even, you know, to, to white Americans by that time, that it wasn't possible, I think, to deny those relationships. But Bernice Blackwelder gave it a, a gave it a kind of narrative that that made sense to her. Um, I think they did. The two of them did not approach these relationships in exactly the same way, and some of that comes out in their letters to one another. Like, should we reveal this? Should we reveal that? Um, and they don't take exactly the same position. Um, it, it it even sounds almost Turnerian, you know, this kind of Turner frontier process as, but it's now as embodied in Kit Carson as he moves, you know, as the frontier unfolds within himself and his family relations, like the uh, American progression and becoming American, right? Right, right. And he does, I mean, and Bernice Blackwelder also, even her physical description of Kit Carson uh, changes as he, as he matures, because he was apparently a, 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 a small, a short man, kind of slight, but he becomes bigger <laughs> over the course of the book. He becomes fully a man, fully American. Um, and so she, she kind of takes that uh, narrative angle as well. So they're both willing to talk about some of the messiness of his interracial marriages, but less willing to to dive into and to reveal some of the other racial complexities of his life, being from a slaveholding family in Missouri. And then also there's some forms of indigenous uh, servitude and slavery in New Mexico. So how do they deal with those issues? Right. So mostly they try to avoid them as much as possible. I mean, you see evidence in uh, McClung's genealogy of the slaveholding of um, Kit Carson's forebears, but nothing about the slaveholding, you know, at the time when he was a, a child and becoming a young, uh, young man in Missouri. And that is pretty well documented in the Carson family papers that are in, in Missouri. So they just kind of left that out of the story. But Carson not only came from a, a slaveholding family in Missouri, he traveled down the Santa Fe Trail, uh, was in the fur trade, an Indian agent, a soldier, 
but he was based more often than not out of Taos, New Mexico, married into a prominent Northern New Mexican family, the Jaramillo family. And those families, uh, you know, had indigenous servants or slaves in them. So Carson is, is really interesting in that regard because he kind of links that form of slavery that most Americans are more familiar with, the enslavement of African descended people in the South, uh, including Missouri, and the form of slavery that we're starting to understand more and more over the last decade or so. The, in, uh, the indigenous slavery, the, the, uh, the trade of indigenous people among indigenous people and the enslavement of indigenous people uh, by Spanish Mexicans in places like New Mexico. So Kit Carson uh, really embodies the links between those two forms uh, of slavery. The, uh, in his uh, marriage, during his uh, marriage to Josefa Jaramillo, they took in at least three uh, Navajo criados, as uh, New Mexicans called their uh, uh, indigenous servants from the verb criar to, uh, to, to raise up, almost as if they were raising uh, these enslaved people as children in their households but they clearly did not have the same status as, uh, as blood family members. All of that is invisible in their work. Um, it's true that we have much more scholarship now on those uh, forms of captivity and coerced labor than was available to them, to, to them then in the 1950s and 60s, but it's certain that they ran across evidence of it. And I think they just didn't know what to do with it. So they left it out. I mean, we can look back now and we can see how they were using Kit Carson as a vehicle to, you know, to show American progress in a way and how these, you know, if westward expansion is a story of American progress, uh, it's often then been written that the less savory parts of American identity, slavery for one, didn't come with, right? That those things were left behind. Do you, do you think that they were consciously thinking? I'm looking back now, we can see like, well, maybe that's why they didn't include it because it didn't fit into this idea that they were trying to form about what Kit Carson embodied. Do you think that was consciously in their mind or just kind of subconsciously in the cultural moment that they were living in? I... <laughs> It's hard to say because it's not something that they wrote a lot about. So my hunch is that they ran across some evidence. They didn't know what to make of it, partly because the scholarship that we now have didn't exist. Um, but there was some scholarship. And I think, you know, they probably decided, as, as you suggest, this doesn't quite fit uh, the stories that people know about the West and we don't quite understand it. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll just leave it out. Yeah. Well, after they publish these books, you then trace them over the, well, you trace them to, to the end of their lives. But uh, as you move into the late sixties and into the seventies, the, which you've already hinted at the cultural moment very much changes and they both find themselves now in a very peculiar position of uh, researching uh, a very mythologized frontier hero in the way that they've somewhat cast him. And now that very same figure is being deconstructed by uh, a, a newly professionalized field of Western history into which they don't quite fit. It's also a very gendered field, mostly right. male historians. You say that one in a review referred to her her being attractive in this in this book review of her book, which, right. oh my goodness, um, <laughs> uh, but so in so many ways they find themselves out of out of step. So as you go through their letters and look through their lives, how are they reacting to you know the late '60s uh, culture wars, and then how that's then rippling out into the field of academic inquiry um, or historical inquiry? How are they reacting right. to that moment? So you know around. Uh, 1970, uh, there are a series of in incidents that, uh, and, and they're really prompted at first more by activists than by historians. Um, but these incidents are calling Kit Carson's legacy 
into question. So there's a controversy at Colorado College around 1970 where uh, Shirley Hill Witt, an indigenous uh, anthropologist, faculty member says, why is this, why are these photographs of Kit Carson displayed uh, kind of with honor uh, on our campus? Um, I think it was an ROTC exhibit, I forget. Um, and uh, I, I'm not sure she knew that the kind of main Carson historian of that time, Harvey Carter, was also employed there. And the two of them got into a war of words uh, uh, over, over Kit Carson. That was kind of a small localized uh, conflict, but a bigger conflict arose uh, down in Taos soon thereafter. Uh, where activists rose up. They were uh, primarily Hispano, Mexican-American activists, but some indigenous activists as, as well, called for a renaming of a park in, um, in Taos, Kit Carson Memorial State Park, which is where Kit Carson and Josefa Jaramillo are buried. And they called for a renaming of that park. They wanted it to be renamed after uh, a, a Taos Pueblo, uh, Indian man who had been taken, um, who, who had died in World War II in a Japanese prison camp. That controversy made it all the way into the New York Times and certainly in local, local newspapers. When these two women got word of these controversies, um, they were kind of astounded. Like they, how, how did this guy who, had been you know, depicted as a frontier hero, suddenly he seemed like a genocidal maniac. Um, and they wrote to one another. They didn't write uh, you know, articles or books or anything about this, but they wrote to one another about this. And they were dismayed. I think Bernice Blackwelder, the um, biographer, who was also the more politically conservative of the two women, was more astounded by what was going on than Quantrill McClung was. Um, but they went back and forth about this. Um, at the same time, Western history as a field had, was now you know, quite well professionalized. Um, and most professional historians fell down on the side of those who uh, thought Kit Carson's name was being maligned and uh, these things people were saying about him were not true. So they got caught up in, in all of this from a distance. I mean, they didn't go to conferences or, but uh, they read about these things in newspapers. They heard about them from, uh, you know, uh, the people who ran the Kit Carson Museum in Taos. And um, they tried to figure out their relationship uh, to, uh, to this controversy. Quantrill McClung, because she was still producing work, genealogy, she produced a big supplement to her original genealogy on the Carson Benton Boggs family. And Bernice Blackwelder was no longer just working on Kit Carson. She was trying to write, which she never finished, a huge project that she called a biographical dictionary of Westerners. So it would have been a big reference work uh, she never finished it, but she had to decide who fit in that in that category of Westerners and how she was going to depict them. And of course, people like Kit Carson uh, belonged in that dictionary, but she made choices. She said, she literally said, there are going to be no Indians in, in, uh, in this biographical dictionary. Yeah, I think even like prominent ones, you know, Chief Washaki, you mentioned she was talking about because she said she wanted to feature those who contributed to right. the development of the West. Of the West, right? And and so Quantrill McClung would feed her information so from time to time about uh, Indigenous people, and she just said, "No, I'm not including any any Indians." It, the the her uh, notes or drafts of this work have not. Um, survived. So we don't know exactly what was in it, but she wrote to her friend Quantrill about it so much that you get a pretty good sense of who was in it. Um, as far as I can tell, the only person of color she ever discussed, including was the fur trapper Jim Beckworth. Um, and his life was too intertwined with those of other fur trappers um, uh, that 
she kind of couldn't couldn't leave him out, but he was uh, the exception that proved the rule. Yeah. As she's making those decisions, how much of that is in response to, um, I mean, this is the era of uh, the, you know, the Red Power Movement, the first publications from Vine Deloria, Dee Brown. How much of her decision-making is is reactionary or kind of in direct opposition or defensive in a way against this growing movement in the field? It's quite defensive and it's defensive both to the movement in the field and to her life experience. So um, let me elaborate on that. Um, you know, I, neither of them ever mentioned Vine Deloria that I, that I have encountered. But they did mention D. Brown, and uh, Bernice Blackwelder held him somewhat responsible <laughs> for the, uh, you know, she she read D. Brown, she read Bury My Heart, Heart It Wounded Me, and she felt that his scholarship was kind of stirring up these activists and more activist historians, and she was not happy about it. Um, but at the same time, they were both city dwellers. Uh, Quantrill McClung lived in downtown Denver. Uh, Bernice Blackwelder at that time lived in a Chicago neighborhood called Logan Square. Logan Square uh, had been a, a kind of, at one time, quite wealthy area of Chicago, but had long since become a working class neighborhood of uh, uh, Polish immigrants and their descendants. Um, and increasingly in the 1960s and 70s became more and more Latinx. So uh, Puerto Ricans, ethnic Mexicans, a few Cubans poured into this area and she was not happy about it. She was not happy about it at all. And she wrote about this a fair amount to her friend Quantrill McClung and um, and also about the response of her husband. Sometimes she kind of foisted her, her own racial reactions to neighborhood change onto her husband, who was a Southerner. He was from uh, North Carolina. But it was clear that for the most part, she shared, uh, shared his sentiments. And interestingly, she kind of depicted herself or she and her husband as kind of the victims of uh, these Puerto Ricans and ethnic Mexicans who are pouring into her neighborhood and um, accusing them of violence and et cetera. Um, and she even kind of, at least rhetorically linked that to her own family's past. She came from old stock white Americans from both New England and the Chesapeake um, and she had uncovered family histories of uh, a couple ancestors of hers who had been taken captive by indigenous people in the colonial era. Um, and she kind of depicted her family as the Indians were after us on all sides. And she kind of felt the same way about her own life in the 1970s in Logan Square in Chicago that um, uh, that she and other white people were being victimized by these newcomers. Um, in neither case, kind of understanding the colonialism that had kind of created those situations in the first place. And you write that they're also reacting to, we've mentioned the professionalization of Western history, but you know, part of that was this, that they kind of complained that what the, the Western history books that they were reading or the articles they were reading was things were getting too complicated right. and too too confusing. You know, they had they had a nice clean narrative, and now suddenly there's uh, all this just new information, not just new interpretations, but new information that they struggled with. And uh, you cite um, Ray Allen Billington, who was you know one of the real uh, you know patriarchs of the field. Uh, you know, was encouraging the field to move from away from just description and move towards analysis, move away from narration and towards interpretation. And so here again, they find themselves kind of out of step or um, a generation behind now. I, I, and you know, the historian in me who's 
I really, I, I love like the messier, the history, the better, the more uncomfortable it makes us, the better. I love it. Um, and so that part of me wants to, you know, look down my nose at them and say, tisk tisk, you should have aged more gracefully. You should have, you know, <laughs> accepted the challenge to move forward with the times. But another part of me, I, I feel a real, uh, a real sorrow and uh, sympathy for them. You know, they are both are older they are don't have professional training and they find themselves in a very difficult situation and um they're also women and you write a lot about the gendered aspects of writing history in the field at the time and how you and maybe this is a good point to talk about this phrase you use of trafficking in men how they use kit carson um you know as their topic as a way to um, you know, to gain access to the historical world, that it was through a man and analyzing men that they they practice their trade, right? And now all of that's under, uh, it, it's all being threatened, right? The, the basis on which they've built this professional life and a lot of their self-identity is now being challenged. Right, right. I mean, they've chosen this frontier figure, Kit Carson. They've definitely, although they, emphasize um, to a greater degree than male historians had his intimate relationships with indigenous and Spanish Mexican women, he is still at the center of the story. And suddenly he comes under attack. And at the same time, the field is professionalizing. So, uh, you know, amateur historians in the field of Western history had um, in, in some fields, women had kind of dominated the amateur history side of things and men academic uh, scholarship. That's not true in Western history. Uh, amateur historians were a very organized bunch in Western history. They created an organization that still exists called the Westerners that had uh, uh, chapters in various cities across the United States and in Europe, et cetera. They were a very organized bunch. But you know, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, professional historians kind of gained the upper hand. Um, and so they're trying to navigate all of this as women who in, at first were kind of in step because they were amateur historians, even though there weren't that many women who were amateur historians. Now they're at a disadvantage, not only because they're amateur, because they're women historians, but because they're amateur historians in a field that is professionalizing. Um, and so they traffic not only in the historical figures that interest them, people like uh, Kit Carson, but also in um, the men who produce Western history. So they write to each other back and forth about um, the scholars, who, especially scholars of the fur trade, um, Leroy Hafen, Harvey Carter, um, they want to know where they stand with these uh, with these professional historians. Because those are some of the more kind of old school camp of, of historians, right? That are exactly. not really at that cutting edge of deconstructing frontier mythologies like right. Leroy Haven and others. So right. they're, they're looking to them to find validation or to take right. their cues from them? Right, to, but but mostly to to um, for validation. It it helps them to know where they stand in uh, in this profession. And they were fortunate, actually, that these were the men because they did correspond with these men. They and uh, they hadn't necessarily met them in the flesh, but um, you know, it was all before email, so people are writing letters back and forth. Because both Harvey Carter and Leroy Hafen were quite welcoming of their work and did recognize it. And that gave them a feeling of, of legitimacy. Um, so, but, you know, it, it's also the, the moment when more and more women are becoming involved in Western history, but those early women historians who uh, later became, you know, uh, presidents of the Western History Association, someone like Mary Lee Spence, uh, uh, they didn't really pay any attention to them. That's not where they got their validation. They really didn't notice, as far as I can tell, that there 
was a, a, a rising contingent of, of women historians in the field. Hmm. So do you feel like kind of a, a sadness or, I mean, pity is not the word, but um, I don't know. It, it, t- it tugs my heartstrings a little bit, kind of watching them s- not squirm, but watching them really wrestle with, well, what am I to do now? Where do I fit in this? Um, I, you know, I'm passionate yeah. about this and I want to keep working on this, but I just don't feel like I belong anymore. That's hard. It's yeah. hard to watch that unfold. Right. And I, I think maybe the word is, is empathy. I yeah. feel empathy with them because I, I have a respect for the hard work that they did and the small gains that they achieved by focusing on, you know, sort of turning someone like Kit Carson into uh, you know, someone who was more deeply tied to non-white Westerners, whether through intimate relationships or, or um, other kinds of relationships in the fur trade or Santa Fe trade. Um, at the same time, uh, the world was moving more quickly than they could keep up with. And they were, they were also aging. Um, yeah. And I also, I, I, I hesitate to even talk about them together because I think they had somewhat different reactions. I think Bernice Blackwelder was more dismayed by some of these changes than Quantrill McClung was. Um, and that may be partly Quantrill McClung, I think was less conservative in her political attitudes, but she also had a whole identity as a librarian. She was retired as a genealogist. Um, so she had sort of other sources of validation in her life. Um, Whereas Bernice Blackwelder had given up, she had a whole life in, um, you know, uh, as a musician, as a performer, she had given that up, turned to writing history, and no sooner did she publish, you know, a not bad biography of Kit Carson than figures like Kit Carson suddenly were, as I said, genocidal maniacs rather than frontier heroes. We don't have time to to get into it, but you... You, you do your book somewhat out of out of chronology and you the third part is then you then rewind and bring them up to the 1940s when they start researching and 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 what I think it makes makes their latter life again painful to watch unfold is how during their early life right with uh, with Bernice you know her it was a series of disappointments um, professionally personally uh, with her family with her husband it's just it's it's a hard biography to read as you know every year they're having they move from chicago to dc they try west coast they can't find steady work the the gigs they're getting are never quite as good as they wanted and then now she finds some personal success i don't know if it brought her much money but definitely validating like here's something that she excelled at and now that's taken away from her as well with quantrill it's not quite as tragic although she's struggling with her own things you know by this point, you know, she's referring to herself as not as the old maid. She was referring to herself. Yep, yep. She, no, she was one of the old maid. Okay, yeah, but yeah. She, she had never married. Um, right. You dig through some very intriguing possibilities of her previous romantic entanglements, but it's right. but but you get the sense that by the end of her life, you know, she'd been through a lot as well. And so, so the, the whole backstory that you reveal, I think, makes it even uh, in some ways a a sadder story yet. And then you finish out the book with, uh, you, you call it an epilogue. It's, and, and your, your prologue and your epilogue are much longer than most prologues and epilogues <laughs> are. Well, and you, the whole book structure, right? You have it in parts. And then within the parts are not chapters, more, right. more subheadings, some of which are only five pages long, some of which are 30 pages long. Exactly. Um, which I found really interesting. And I, I think it was actually really great. It gave you a flexibility to, here's kind of a theme that I want to chew on, but only for five pages. I can't right. do a whole chapter on this, um, right. but this next one's going to take 30. It was kind of nice seeing that flexibility it gave you. Right. And I think when doing that kind of life writing, um, most people's lives don't divide up neatly in, into chapters. So that, that was part of that, uh, part of that decision. And it was also, um, sometimes I feel like, I'm reading the same history book over and over again. And it's sort of 
just by the way it's packaged kind of yeah four five six chapters an introduction conclusion the introduction kind of takes a bunch of historians to task and says here's what we don't understand and then you know and and i just I, i mean some of my favorite books are exactly that structure and they're so effective but i wanted to experiment a little bit with form and um you know, I didn't, I wanted to tell their lives in the 1960s and 70s as amateur historians before I talked about their growing up years and their young adulthood, because I thought, why would anyone care about that before you know what they did, what they achieved as middle-aged and, and older older women? I think that was really smart. If I had read that part first, I would have been it wouldn't have been as it wouldn't have been as compelling. Whereas now that I know the the kind of middle life story, now I'm okay. Well, what what led him to this point? It was I think a really interesting turn, and I think it's fun. Yeah, seeing like my own book was comparative history, and I was wrestling with well, how do I make it comparative while also maintaining narrative? And so I ended up dividing it into parts and having two to three four page part introductions, not as chapters, but as a way to like wrestled with a bunch of you know analytical comparative stuff and then we went to the more narrative chapters and my, my, the press was really open to that even though it was a little bit non it wasn't conventional i hope i hope your press was open to you or maybe at this point in your career you can just do whatever you want uh, no i mean there was there were questions at one point could could those sections within the parts couldn't they just be chapters and i i pushed back because i said most of those sections within the parts don't, a, a chapter should have a discrete argument. Yeah. That it, and, and some of those, they advance the narrative, but the argument is really in the larger part. And, you'd be, you know, you'd they, be forcing they, them, you'd be like, okay, now how do I force, right. well, what's this chapter about then? What's like the, yeah, what's the, the, the analysis? What's the thesis of this part? Right. Of, well, you're just actually trying to tell the story at that point. It's interesting. You've kind of come back, you know, from what uh, Billington was saying, right? He's like less description, more analysis, less narrative, and and you're you've kind of brought it back and married them together in interesting ways. Right. I mean, there, there's so much narrative in the book, but what I try to do is pause from time to time to engage in analysis and also flesh out the the historical context. Um, you know, whatever the relevant historical context is at the time. Well, we probably need to wrap up. I wanted to come back to you um, because you, you're all over this book. And although you say you make yourself visible, but I flipped through these, I mean, you have a, an amazing section of historical photographs and things in the book, yeah. but uh, I did not see any of yourself uh, <laughs> up on that ranch by Ennis, Montana. I was hoping to see a young Susan on horseback, but how has this project changed you? And and you can take that either. How has it changed you personally? Because you intimately invested yourself in this project. Or you could take this, like, how has this changed you uh, professionally as a historian? Or both. Yeah. Well, you know, professionally, it, uh, I, as I said, I was trained as a 19th century historian. So part of the reason this book took so long is that Every 10 pages or so, I had to immerse myself in a new historiography, whether it was the historiography of uh, changing ideas about race in the early 20th century or city-suburb relationships in the, in the post-World uh, War II era. Um, so that's huge. Um, I don't plan to stay in the 20th century. I think I'm going to return to the 19th century because I'm always uh, more comfortable there. But personally, um, you know, I was in a 23-year intimate relationship with a New Mexican woman, woman and Hispana, uh, who died six years ago Wednesday uh, of cancer. And we were together through the entire time I was working on this, uh, this project. Um, I wrote, I don't know, maybe the last quarter of it after she passed. And I was always in dialogue with her. Her name is Camille Gadeen Gonzalez. She was also a historian. 
I was always in dialogue with her about this project. And I think my initial attraction to writing about Kit Carson and his interracial, intercultural, interethnic relationships at first came out of my own personal experience. And so my identification in this book, as problematic as it is in many ways, is more with Kit Carson than it is with these, uh, um, you know, amateur historians. Um, but when my partner died six years ago, the book had to change. Um, it had to tell a different story. And in many ways, kind of quiet ways, um, not always fully articulated ways, the book is a tribute to her and to her memory and to her history growing up in, in New Mexico and all that I learned from her in those, in those 23 years. Um, and that also explains why it took so long because that it's hard emotional work to put that on a page in a way that's responsible, not self-indulgent and that I think she would appreciate and approve of and say, thumbs up, you did it. Well, I think, yeah, it's, it's moving and compelling. And the way you end um, talking about her and that loss um, made me pause and review in my mind, you know, everything I, you know, all the other hundreds of pages I had just read and to think about it doesn't just tie things up in an interesting way, but it really, it lends, um, I don't know, a lot of, uh, humanity is not the word, but I can't quite put it into words, but. Humanity is a pretty good word. Yeah. <laughs> um, we need to wrap up. I don't want to try our listeners' patience or uh, take more of your time. I know you mentioned that there may be a dog running around the hallway behind you, <laughs> um, desperate for, for your love and affection. Um, I do have two questions. Um, are, are you going to pursue a Kit Carson book to, to go, go back to the one that you were thinking of doing? Um, and if so, or if not, um, do, would you like to give listeners any uh, teases about what you're working on in the future? Or you can hold that sure. closer to the chest and not give us a tease if you'd like. No, no, I'm, 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 I'm happy to answer that question. I'm not gonna write the book that I set out to write. Um, Partly, you know, one of the things I discovered is that a long, long time ago, two amateur historians named Bernice Blackwelder and Quantrill McClung had kind of done that work. Now they did it in an entirely different way than I would, uh, would do it. But I think since that time, I, I think Anne Hyde's book, Empires, Nations and Families, and she also has a, a, a new book um, she's working on, on uh, mixed race people has done some of that work and many other scholars uh, as, as well. Uh, but what this project did lead me into um, is that connection between uh, black chattel slavery in Missouri and points east and uh, work on uh, indigenous captivity and coerced labor in the borderlands. And so what I'm working on now is a project that shows how the Santa Fe Trail, which you know, led from uh, Missouri to uh, New Mexico and was used from the 1820s to the 1870s, literally connected those worlds of slavery. And the enslaved and coerced laborers who traveled along that trail or crossed that trail, um, you know, Western trails are kind of old fashioned topics, but there is, you know, an incredible body of source material out there that has never been read looking for that kind of evidence. And, you know, I started a couple of years ago, thought, well, I'll just kind of start in the US-Mexico war era because there's a big paper trail and, you know, just focusing on that period in the 1840s, I kind of couldn't believe how much I turned up about actual enslaved uh, captive people along, along the trail. 
at first I thought maybe, oh, once again, this will just be an article. But no, it is it, it is a book. If just the 1840s has that much, uh, you know, documentation, I think looking at, you know, the all 1820s to the 1870s is going to turn up even more. So, you know, I'm calling it now, it, it'll change. Right now I call the project The Trail the Slaves Made. Um, but that kind of gives you an idea of, of what the project is looking like. That sounds, and I'm very that happy sounds so to be great. back. I'm so, so happy to be back in the 19th century. <laughs> I don't like a lot of these people, but I understand them. I understand the sources. Yeah, that sounds so great. I love these projects where you know, like oh, another book on the Santa Fe Trail. Isn't that so yeah. worn and tired? And then you hear the angle and it's, it's unbelievable. How has someone not written that book already? How has no right. one asked this, this question that's just so in our face? So that's right. great. Awesome. Right. right. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking a few moments out of your busy day and uh, best of luck uh, with the new project, with promoting this project. Congrats on the book. And I hope that uh, we will be able to um, cross paths at a conference in person sometime soon yeah. <laughs> and we get out of our current uh, predicament. So I'm looking forward to that in the future. Well, thank you, Brendan. And thank you for doing this work. It's just, it's so important for our field and I'm really grateful to you. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Okay. Take care, Susan. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for this month. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you'll subscribe. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates, leave comments, and communicate with me. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We are an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understanding of the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream. We have an annual funding cycle with awards, grants, fellowships, in categories that nearly anyone researching and working on the region from nearly any disciplinary approach or towards nearly any kind of final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson. That's Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, just about everything else, so you can direct praise or critique my way. I'm the author and editor of a number of books uh, and other studies on the West, Borderlands, Native Peoples, Genocide Studies, Religion, and the Environment. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or just about anything else, head to bwrensink.org. That's B-W-R-E-N-S-I-N-K.org. Or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. <laughs>